You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 84. And today we're asking the question, how do organizations balance reliable performance and spontaneous innovation? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. And today, we're going to look back at a foundational paper. It's, it's a personal, it's one of the personal favourites of mine, and it predates and informs a lot of modern safety thinking. We referred back to this paper way back in episode two of the podcast when we talked about why people break rules. But today we thought we'd do a bit of a deep dive into the paper. So Drew, let's jump straight into the paper. Okay. So the title is The Motivational Basis of Organizational Behavior. The author of the paper is Daniel Katz. And if you hear David and I talking about it, we usually just talk about, oh, that Katz paper from 1964. It's one of my favorites too. Katz is probably one of the only authors we've talked about who gets their own Wikipedia page. We've talked about some papers by people who are pretty well known in the safety community, but Katz is really one of the founding fathers of the whole field of organizational psychology. And you look back at the sort of things he's done, most of them seem so simple because we just take them completely for granted now in the way we think about organizations. One of them I'd never actually heard of, which is open system theory. And then you look at it and it's just basically he wrote a whole book saying we need to think of organizations as shaped by the environment they're in instead of as closed independent systems. So it's, you know, the sort of thing that seems totally obvious, but wasn't obvious before Katz. So he's obviously published a lot, um, none of it specifically to do with safety, but lots of it touching on safety. And he specifically mentioned safety issues quite a few times throughout his work, including in this paper. So Drew, the paper was published in the journal Behavioural Science, uh, like you mentioned, 1964. It's been cited more than 3,000 times since, and a few of, the, a few of those citations are, are our own papers in, in recent years as well, Drew, as we brought some of his ideas into, into how we, well, we, when I say we, how, how you and I have been thinking about managing safety. So Drew, I thought we might start with a few quotes, uh, and this is, this, is, um, this is a quote that we've actually put in our own papers, uh, so I'll read it out. The great paradox of a social organisation is that it must not only reduce human variability to ensure reliable role performance, but that it must also allow room for some variability and in fact encourage it. And he goes on to say, Drew, that no organisational planning can foresee all contingencies within its operations or can anticipate with perfect accuracy all environmental changes or can control perfectly all human variability. And finally, Drew, an organisation which depends solely upon its blueprints of prescribed behaviour is a very fragile social system. 1964. Drew, what, what do you think of those quotes? So what I'm hearing there, David, is those critics of Safety 2 who say, yeah, Safety 2 and Resilience, it's nothing new. There, there is a little bit of a point there that a lot of these ideas have been understood for a very long time, but arguably not really transferred successfully into safety. These are things that were understood about organisational theory, crept into some of the HR management type stuff, but haven't really flowed through to safety theory until relatively recently. 
Yeah, and as we talk through the rest of this podcast, listeners might want to reflect on, you know, the extent of progress which which uh, which you feel that we have or haven't made in in the last sixty years. Uh, but but Drew, I sort of got a bit bit sidetracked when when we were preparing this episode just now, just and bounced around the internet, just looking at how cool, how much cool social and organizational theory work was going on in the fifties and sixties. So McGregor was developing theory X and theory Y, closely tied to um, Abraham Maslow's work on what expanded that to theory Z. Uh, different types of management styles, and particularly in the US, because you know, it was this period of sort of really significant racial tensions, the Vietnam War, social injustice, and and turmoil, and it created this big explosion in theory and research, which are uh, many of which our listeners will will know today. You know, cognitive dissonance was was in the late fifties. The bystander effect was the same year as this paper. We had the Milgram experiments going on. Kurt Lewin was popularizing his ideas about organizational change. So. It would have been a pretty cool time to be an academic in uh, in social and organisational theory, Drew. Yeah, my immediate thought is it's uh, amazing what you can do without modern ethics restrictions. But yeah, yes, at that at that time, in in a lot of fields, the academic world was smaller, and I think because it was smaller, it was also a lot more socially vibrant. So a lot of these people weren't just putting out these cool ideas, but they knew each other and they were feeding off each other in a very personal way. There wasn't the sheer volume of stuff being published to read. And probably less probably less shots across the bow on LinkedIn as well. Yeah. So, so, so a lot of this stuff was readily accessible to lots of people, whereas today sometimes, even when come, people come up with very good ideas, really cool insights, they just get buried and lost until they get rediscovered. So, Drew, the, the questions this paper asks, so this, this, this idea, the motivational basis of organisational behaviour. So, so what Katz is, is, is asking and, and, and answering in his own way in this paper is how and to what extent do people become involved in an organisation and committed to its goals? So this is this, you know, we want our workers to buy into the goals of the organisation. How does an organisation attract the people it's, it needs, um, get the right, the right resources with the right capabilities, and how does it hold on to them? You know, what makes them want to stay in the company, and then how does it do this? This big question we're asking in this podcast: How does it induce both reliable performance of people in their role and people's willingness to to spontaneously innovate and show initiative on the part of achieving the organisation's objectives? And I think, Drew, this last question and the title of the podcast, I'm interested in your views. I'm not sure we're any closer to answering that today, sixty years later. And in many ways, we we might even be further away from the solution. So in Contemporary safety theory, we talk about compliance and autonomy as these opposite ends of a spectrum. And I think we all know, well, we all know that it's it's not an or, it's an and. We need to have both. And we've got language like freedom in a frame or, you know, paper that we published on guided adaptability. But I'm not sure. What do you think? Do you think we have any good models for helping organizations dynamically balance this paradox? Well, I think the problem is that the word paradox refers to an apparent contradiction. And I think that what we genuinely have is a real goal conflict. We have two different types of behaviours that we need, and we need people to do both of those all of the time. So it's not like we sometimes deploy one, sometimes deploy the other. We need them both ongoing. But most of the strategies that are available to us uh, promote one at the expense of the other which means that we have this forced choice, even though we really, really want and need both. And, and I think that's particularly 
I don't think that that's unsolvable, but it does require us to recognize that if we've got a strategy that promotes one, we need we can't think about that in isolation. We need to think about what it's doing to the other. When we promote autonomy, we need to think about what that does for reliable role performance. When we have something that we think works really well promoting reliable role performance, we need to think about whether that is hurting the discretionary behaviors. And maybe we need to give up on things that seem really good at doing one because the negative effects on the other is just too much. Yeah, and I think there is this idea that um, complex situations, you know, may need complex, you know, clearly need complex solutions. And to think that we can we can manage our, and I'm not sure that anyone still thinks that we can manage our complex systems with these these, you know, simple and and, and binary management approaches. But a lot of a lot of heavy lifting to do, I think, in the safety space. So, so as we talk about how how Katz sort of attacks the problem, how he starts talking yeah. about it. Yeah, let's do that. So he sets off that the, the basic idea that he wants to address is that we've got these organizations which are to him very clearly social systems. And he's concerned that often the fact that they're social systems tends to get discounted. Um, we tend to think of them more as structures and institutions and frameworks. We don't think about the fact that almost the whole organization, except for the buildings, is really just the people and how those people behave and interact with each other. And so he says, we need to think then, okay, what, what, what do we want these people to be doing? What are the types of behaviors that we want? What motivates people to do those behaviors? And what sort of motivational strategies are available to us? And then what are the conditions under which those motivational patterns are going to operate or work successfully? And if we're clear about each of those three things, we can then start deciding, okay, what do we as an organization want to try to do? Given the conditions we're in, what patterns can we employ to get the behaviors that we want? Um, and he then says, there are three basic types of behaviors that we want. Um, so this is sort of universal. Any organization needs these things. Uh, number one, people have got to want to join the organization and want to stay there. Number two, people need to carry out their role assignments in a dependable fashion. This is what we mean by dependable role performance or compliance. And people must be innovative on spont and spontaneous beyond their role descriptions. Um, we'll go into each of these in detail, but pretty much he says like all of the behaviors fall under one of these three categories and all three of those are essential for every organization. Andrew, so let's talk about attracting and holding people in the system. So Drew, do you want to sort of talk about what Kat's laid out in terms of how an organization needs to think about people's willingness to join and stay? So I personally think that this is the most boring part of the behavior. It might've been sort of like original and new when he presented it. But he basically says that people leave organizations and you need people to come in as fast as they leave because high and you don't want that leaving and coming in to be too fast because high turnover costs you. But he also says there's got to be some sort of like optimal period. You don't want people to stay around forever either. You want some sort of steady rate of people coming in, people going out. And while they're there, they've got to be doing stuff. They can't just be turning up and not helping. So he talks about people who are within the system physically, but maybe psychological absentees, which is something that we talk in a very modern idea of presenteeism and people who stay within an organization better are burned out. 
but he just sort of like touches on that we can't be simplistic about this. It's not just you know, physically getting people to stay, but getting them to stay and still be willing to be productive. So when people are in our organisations, let's talk about first about dependable role performance. So, you know, there's an infinite range. So Catch goes on to describe there's an infinite range of and variety of human behaviour. We know that. Um, inside organisations, we need to do stuff, uh, produce stuff. And so we must limit this infinite variability of what people could be doing in our company to a limited number of predictable patterns. So assigned roles get carried out in a consistent way, and then that allows coordinated effort across the organisation. If I know how someone else is going to do their role, then they're part of the organisation's function can be handed off to the next the next responsible person and the next responsible person. So we need to know how how assigned roles are going to be carried out and what the minimum sort of level of quantity and quality of performance is so that you know, an organisation needs coordinated effort and the way to coordinate that effort is to know how people are making their individual contributions. Yeah, David, I don't know about you, but even this one being spelt out sort of struck me that it's a kind of weird idea fairly artificial that when you join an organization, you are given a particular role. So you, you stop just being like generic human and you become, okay, you are senior lecturer. And there's a set of things that a senior lecturer is expected to do. Or you are you're, you are nurse in an emergency department. There's a certain set of specific things that a nurse in an emergency department is meant to do. Um, and, and Kat says that, you know, for almost all of these roles, they've got a set of stuff they're supposed to do. And being successful in that role means you do a lot of that thing and you do it well. And if everyone's got the right roles and they do a lot of those things in those roles and we've got the right roles in the organisation, then the organisation is going a long way to meet its objectives. Yeah, I think one of the things that I took out of, of rereading this is um, this dependable role performance. What's the, what's the, the purpose is that we know the quality and quantity of outputs that are going to come from an individual or, or a unit. So your example of senior lecture is that They'll say, you need to have a certain number of courses, Drew. You know, you should be teaching two hours a week on this subject and four hours on that. You need to have assessments that add up. You need to do the grades and the assignments and get those submitted by this date. But they don't tell you exactly how to teach for the two hours that you're inside the classroom. Well, they don't. Um, and I think this is where we've, we've missed the intention of having this dependable role performance so we can coordinate the organisation, but not necessarily to... And as we'll we'll go through the rest of this paper, our motivation is specifying how people do all of the work within their individual areas is is less useful. Well, there there may be times when it is. Certainly, for example, say if you think about if we stick to the lecture and the idea of student experience, then sometimes what we really do want is very dependable role performance. We want every lecturer not just to teach, but to have a course profile. We want them all to have an online site with a reading list in the same format so that the students can easily access it. So we may set like minimal standards for the purpose of creating that uniformity to achieve the overall organization's objectives. You know, it's, it's not just a fire and forget to find the role, to find the performance outcomes and then go for it. There are sometimes good reasons for specifying other aspects of how people perform the roles. But sometimes we forget that we do that for specific purposes. Not, not just for the sake of having conformance. Yeah, it's a great point. The specific purpose, knowing the specific purpose of why of, of why we're creating standardization and consistency in an aspect of a person's role is a is a good check and balance for us to, or a good question for us to ask. 
So, Drew, if we move from beyond the dependable role performance to this this idea of spontaneous initiative, and we we know in contemporary safety theory about performance variability and and adaptability and autonomy and and emergence in complex systems, and and that I suppose resilience engineering theory says that the only way that we can keep our systems safe is by the responsible actions of humans responding to situations that they face. So, how does Katz talk about it? in a similar or different way to, you know, what what we know in contemporary safety theory about this spontaneous initiative. So I guess the difference is that modern safety theory emphasizes heavily the idea of we want variability. Uh, that, you know, variability is inevitable. We can't control it. It's always going to be there. How do we manage it safely? Whereas what Katz does is he breaks down some very specific examples of things that by definition, we cannot manage through reliable role performance. So he's trying to sort of like make that first principles argument. Look, you might think that you can define everything by just carefully specifying the roles, but there's some things that you absolutely can't. Yeah, there's some things that by definition, you can never create, not just no rule, but no description of what someone is generally supposed to do that would cover all of the things that we expect them to do. They're necessarily undefined. And so he goes through like a set of cases. The first one he goes through is cooperation. He says that there's heaps of everyday acts of people helping each other out that go beyond what's in their role description. And if we tried to write a role description for everyone, for everything that they're expected to do that involves helping other people out, then it would just be impossibly vague as a role description. If we tried just carrying a list of, these are all the people who might come to you for information. These are all the people who might come to you for help. These are all the people you might be walking along and see someone who needs a hand with something and try to say, okay, that is your job. Then we would no longer have roles defined at all. And yet if people did just say, that's not my job and stuck to the stuff that they own, then no one would be up to their job because we all depend on other people helping us out. And so, Drew, that I I like the way that he's deepened this uh, this this framework around around this variability. So the second one after cooperation is protection. So do you want to do you want to talk about about that as well? Then, yep. So he gives a, gives a couple of examples here that are out of I think date. So the very first thing he says is there's nothing in the role prescriptions of the worker which specifies that he be on the alert to save life and property in the organisation. And I actually think that that one is no longer true for modern organizations. I think most organizations actually have built into their role descriptions. If they don't, it's literally written into the law <laughs> that it's part of your job, that if there's something that's a danger to other people around you, it is part of your job to help out. So, but you know, even things like he says, the worker who goes out of his way to remove a boulder accidentally lodged in the path of a freight car. Again, we often build this now into our role descriptions that we expect people to spot and report hazards. But then he also says, or even to disobey orders when they are obviously wrong and dangerous. Now, that's one that, you know, by definition, you cannot write into a role description, but that we absolutely expect. You know, we absolutely expect people not to keep following their role if it is dangerous. We expect them to disobey. And by definition, you cannot tell someone in advance when they're expected to disobey the instructions that you're giving them. And so, Drew, a few more ideas in here about creative or, or constructive ideas just sort of to finish off this framework around just why we can't specify this this initiative that we need. Yep. So, so the constructive ideas is, is just that 
even if people are in a job that expects them to come up with ideas, that we still expect people generally to want to improve their workplace, to generally be thinking about different ways to do their job. And sometimes the idea they have might not be about their job, it might be about someone else's job or something else in the workplace. We expect people to not just keep that to themselves. And the general idea here is that we expect people to think about what the organisation is overall trying to do. And we expect them sometimes to, rather than, you know, what am I expected to do, think this is what my organisation is expected to do and help out with that. And so Drew, then Katz goes on, the next the next part of the paper that we introduced, he talks about favourable attitude and he's starting to talk about culture and climate because what he's saying there is if we're, we're, we want to attract and retain people in our organisation, we want them to, to, to work in support of the organisation's objectives. We want them to feel the need to, to deliver their dependable role performance and go beyond their role to support other people's and, um, and, and other situations to deliver the organisation's objectives. We need people to have this favourable attitude towards their role in the organisation. So do you want to just talk a little bit about this, this concept and how Katz describes, I mean, he's saying climate, I think, isn't he? I don't think he is. I think he's saying that we need the climate, but he's saying that it's made up of individuals who are actually good to work around. And I mean, reading between the lines, he's basically saying that if we had an organisation filled with people who were productive and role compliant and even innovative, and they were all jerks, the organisation would still grind to a halt. (laughs) We've got to have people who actually, we've got to have everyone actually want to be there and be motivated because that's what this whole paper is about is people are motivated to help the organization. And that having everyone motivated requires people who are in an environment that is motivating and that environment is made up of all the other people around them. So, you know, sort of in addition to just having people who are good at their jobs, we need people who like their jobs and um, who like their company. And he even says things like, you know, we want people to be telling their families that it's a good company. We don't want to just rely on our sales department to promote the company. And you can just imagine, like, I don't want to pick on... Now, let's pick on an example. If everyone who works at Facebook (laughs) publishes blogs or comes out as whistleblowers and says, look, it is really bad to work at Facebook, that is not good for Facebook. (laughs) They might be great employees in every other respect, but if their own employees don't like them, that is bad. And they've got to spend a lot of effort and a lot of money and a lot of rebranding to deal with that problem. Because we need our employees to be brand advocates. We need our employees to like working there and to make things good for other people and to tell the community that it's good to work there. Um, and all of that is really hard to write into a job description, but it's definitely something we still want. Yeah, or a recruitment and selection process. Um, but again, something that we want. So Drew, do you want to just talk about this this sort of being similar to or to um, to maybe you know military military concepts? So there's something that has been in the military for a very, very long time. And when you read up examples of this, like go back to the 1700s and Nelson gets talked about a lot in this as well, but it's only really been theorized in the last couple of decades. The idea of mission command, that we want really everyone in our organization not to be striving to do, to follow orders, but in order to achieve the overall organizational objectives. And so a lot of the time, if we're good at giving orders, then you don't just understand the organizational objectives, you also understand what your own intended role is and you serve your own intended role. But having that broader understanding also means sometimes you've got freedom to adapt your role. We don't want to over-specify 
We want to give people a good sense of what the mission is, a good sense of what their own role is, and a good sense of where they have freedom to adapt, where they have freedom to change their role, where they have freedom to do things that are inconsistent with their direct orders, but consistent with what the mission is. Um, and then Katz goes a step even further than the military because he says, okay, the key thing in this is motivation. It's not about understanding what your job is. It's actually wanting to do it. And that's the trick for organizations is we can't control this stuff by orders. We can't control this stuff by just forcing people to do things. We've got to somehow set up an organization where people want to both be compliant with their job, fulfill the minimum roles, and they want to step beyond that. And that's really hard if motivating people for reliable role performance demotivates them for showing initiative. And Katz gives some like really obvious examples that if you want to attract people to stay in an organization, then you make their job easy. <laughs> you make it so it's relaxing to come to work. If you want people to be productive, then you want to push them to work hard, <laughs> which makes them not want to come to work. So it's really hard to balance both. If you want people to be really productive against really set criteria, then you're disincentivizing them to spend any time or attention for anything outside those metrics. If you want people to do lots of discretionary behavior, then you've got to understand that's going to take time and attention away from the core parts of their role. Yeah, so Drew, I think um, I think it was General Patton said, uh, never tell people how to do things, just tell them what they need to achieve and they'll surprise you with their ingenuity. And I think what Katzi's saying underneath that, there needs to be the motivation and the commitment to the organization. The, the intrinsic motivation to the organization's objectives. So Drew, I love, I really like the way that Katz, you know, he's got a very core objective in this paper, but each section just goes deeper and deeper, like sort of layers of an onion in um, in unpacking unpacking this. So maybe let's talk about rules because underneath this, this need for dependable role performance, he then goes on to talk about, I suppose, how organizations create that dependability through through rules and talks about the legitimacy of those rules. So do you want to, do you want to kick us off with, with how he talks about that. I'm happy to give it a start, David, but I might need your help to talk about this one. So, so he, he, he's trying to talk about when are people motivated to follow rules? And he says, people are motivated when they think that the rules are legitimate, that they make sense. So that particularly works if rules are setting minimum standards that everyone agrees with. You, most people, if you tell them about a particular job, they'll agree that there should be minimum standards. And if you set those minimum standards reasonably, they'll agree to follow those minimum standards. They'll please themselves to follow them. They'll please other people to follow them. But that same logic also says there's no particular reason in going far beyond the minimum standards. So if you've got these rules that are legitimized because they're the minimum necessary standard, then the minimum rules quickly become the maximum rules. And so if you want to increase performance, you've got to lift that minimum but the more you lift the minimum, the harder it is for everyone to agree that, yes, that is the minimum standard. <laughs> Until eventually you've got a standard that most people have to work really, really hard to meet. And they'll start disagreeing that that's a reasonable minimum standard. The rules start to lose legitimacy again. Yeah, well, well explained, Drew. Did no, no help required. But he does, Katz does go on to talk about conditions conducive to, to what he says, the activation of rules. But this is, I think, the, the following you, you can think of activation of rules as basically them being functional and, and followed in an organization. So it talks about appropriateness and relevance, uh, which is what you just explained there, Drew. Talked about clarity, which was really important, like knowing, you know, specifically in relation to an individual's role, the, the clarity of exactly what the organization was, was expecting. Uh, reinforcement, which we would know of now, but, you know, some of these things were fairly newly conceptualized at the time that they, that if it's going to, 
if we are going to get dependable role performance, these, these expectations need to be continually reinforced and then talked about system rewards and individual um, rewards. So people seeing this sort of consistency of application and, and rule following going across, going on in the organisation. And then for individuals, how we reward individuals where they're getting sort of some recognition uh, and um, potentially, you know, personal bonuses and things like that uh, in relation to how they're going about their, their dependable parts of their role. But he's got a really interesting piece as well on the intrinsic side of it that he says, you know, we only really need this if we're extrinsically motivating people. That if you can get someone who actually likes doing a particular job, then they're not even going to notice that they've got like a minimum number of amount of work they need to do because they'll just be happy doing it all day. And they're not going to notice like minimum standard of quality because they like doing their job well and that's what they get satisfaction from. So part of that setting of minimum standards is only necessary when people are motivated by the intrinsic systems. If you can get someone who genuinely enjoys doing the work and genuinely enjoys doing the work well, then that motivates them totally outside that system of rules. But you still get the reliable role performance from them. Yeah, and there's some, I mean, the paper's full of really well-articulated, you know, small paragraphs and quotes. So I really love um, Katz's use of language when he describes this, because with that intrinsic job satisfaction, he, I'll paraphrase a bit here, but talks about the person who delights in what they're doing is the one that won't worry about the fact that they have to follow certain uh, requirements. Their gratification comes from their accomplishment and their expression of their own abilities and the exercise of their own decisions. And he links that to craftsmanship, uh, which we we hear a little bit about in in, in contemporary safety, uh, which refers to this skilled performer who's got so much intrinsic job satisfaction that they're not a clock watcher um, and they're not a shoddy performer. So he really talks about this intrinsic motivation as being sort of the backbone of um, organisational performance. Yeah, David, I don't know if you know anything about Katz's sort of organisational politics, but I get a real hint here that he's really not a fan of assembly lines. So, you know, he follows his section on craftsmanship by sort of saying if there's one thing in all the studies about worker morale and motivation and intrinsic motivation, it's that people want variety and challenge in their work. And that part of getting people motivated like this means that they've got to have gratification from doing the work uh, which is counter to when the work is very strictly regimented and when they can't see the contribution of their own work to the whole. Yeah, look, I think through this period is, I mean, this is 50 years on from Taylor, and I think it's also post, this is the post-war era as well. And like we were saying earlier, there was so much attention being given to social and political injustice and and freedom of speech and uh, human rights and uh, equality and all of these things. I think this 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 generation of, social psychologists were really pro really pro the individual if if that makes some sense mm. yeah there, there might be one reason why these ideas are resonating at the moment that you know they'd been through a very heavily emphasis on regimented production line type work and they were having a real nostalgia for craftsmanship but it wasn't just like a fake nostalgia. It was a real concern for individual motivation and individual well-being in the workplace. And I'm wondering if we're doing exactly the same thing coming out, out from the era of quality assurance and its similar emphasis on standardization, that people are now starting to recognize again that individual motivation doesn't come from standardization. It comes from you know, suitable autonomy in your role, 
suitable discretion, suitable pride in the performance of a complete work product. And so we're sort of like doing that same re-emergence and re-emphasis on the individual well-being coming from real deep job satisfaction. Yeah, Drew, I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering how many how many cycles you need for a patent. But just as you were saying that, I think there's, there's these 50-year cycles. So in the 1850s, we had a lot coming out of like the 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 coal mining fatalities. We got a whole raft of of, of regulation in the in the mid 19th century, and then we had these ideas. If you look at some of the writing in the late 1800s, there's a lot of writing about like pre World War One, a lot of writing about crafts craftsmanship and and expertise and and judgment. And then we got you know the factory acts and and scientific management. And then it seems that we we sort of bounced out of it again in the in the 50s, and then bounced back into it. So maybe there's just a cycle that repeats every 50 years or so. Hopefully with a little bit of extra understanding about the importance of these things each time. Okay, so, so what, what are the sort of conditions and patterns that get people to not just do the reliable role performance, which is what we've been talking about, but also that innovative side of things? So the first point that Katz makes is that you can't directly incentivize, you can't create rules for innovation but you can still incentivize it because you can create rules for rewarding innovation. So you can sort of, um, and this is what organizations try to do, is they specify individual role performance and they set things up like, you know, prizes for ideas or put things into our hazard reporting system and win a ticket in the lotto, lotto for a voucher or something like that. So we're trying to create this discretionary behavior, not by mandating it, but still by rewarding it when it happens. So that's one approach. But Katz says that what we really want to do is actually have people self-identify with the broader goals of the organization. And so that's what gets them beyond role performance into organizational performance, is when they see it as part of themselves to step outside their roles and to do these discretionary activities. Um, and he sets out a set of conditions again for why this might be the case. Um, and his overall banner here is he said the important thing is that we want them to identify not with the organization as a safe and secure haven, but with its major purposes. So not, I like working here because it's a stable job and I get rewarded and I get to spend my time how I like, but I want to work here because this is what we do and I'm part of that. So first condition he says is how we select people into the organization is match the personality of the people with the system. I've seen some very perverse versions of this, David, but I think there's a like general goal, maybe. I suppose there's a tension here. I mean, we're seeing some ideas around higher for fit, higher for cultural fit, and then we're also seeing this um, emergence of ideas around higher for diversity as well. So I suppose I'm not quite sure how our contemporary ideas, whether whether they're as clear as what Katz is laying out here. Yeah, I, I think we've recognised that it might be a bit more nuanced than that. But remember, what... Katz is not, he's not really talking about homogeneous personalities. He's talking about the organization having values and then selecting people who share those values, which I think is probably a bit clearer. So you can think here about, you know, Griffith University has an explicit social justice agenda. Let, let's hire people who actually care about social justice into that organization means that when we want people not just to lecture, but also take part in the community program, we don't need to incentivize them to do it because that's what they like about Griffith is the fact that they do that sort of thing. And then he, oh, he has this discussion about how what really happens in organizations isn't identification with the organization as a whole. It's people form these little groups and the group identity is really what shapes their daily work life. 
And he says, then a lot, again, this is a little bit out of date. He says, often those group objectives for workers are more about union objectives than about the organizational objectives. So he's talking about how do we get people to, so he, he associates the union objectives with that safe and secure haven. Yeah, I'm working here in a safe job, good job, pays well, has good conditions. That's what unions want. And all of that is worthwhile. But we don't want that to be why people come to work. We want them to come to work for the organisation. And to do that, uh, we need them to participate in important decisions. So, you know, not just be consulted, but genuinely feel like they have a say in where the organisation is going. We want them to feel that they're contributing to the group performance in a significant way. So they feel that their work doesn't just matter for its own sake, but matters for the mission. And we want them to share in the rewards of the group achieving the mission. So when the organization does well, they personally do well. They don't feel like they're just like basically working for the man. That they're working for themselves. And then he touches a little bit just on uh, social satisfaction and affiliate motivation. An alternate way of doing that is not to actually have them identify with the organization, but just to really like the people they're working with and to want to be part of a community of people and to think of themselves as coming to work as part of a community rather than coming to work for the organization as a sort of abstract entity. So, Drew, we've sort of been through these, you know, the three big questions that, that Katz was was asking. How do we attract and retain the people that we want? How do we uh, get the dependable role performance that we need? And how do we inspire and motivate for this uh, spontaneous initiative that, that contributes to the organisation being successful? So what practical takeaways can we can we take out of this paper? Do you want to run through a couple? Oh, well, practical takeaways from a 60-year-old paper. It, it's scary that there are practical takeaways, really. So, so the first and most obvious message of this is that it's you know, motivating people to follow rules is not enough. We've got these two discrete aspects, reliable role performance and innovation and extension beyond the role. And we need people to be motivated to do both of those. And the sort of paired takeaway with that is that pushing really hard on compliance can be counterproductive for those other behaviours. The more we incentivize and motivate people to be reliable role performers, the more they are afraid, they're scared, they are wa feel they're wasting time when they step outside and do those other things that we need them to do. We can help a little bit with getting that, with giving uh, rewards, you know, sort of intrinsic, extrinsic motivation. But the real goal is to get people to actually want to do more than their role. And that requires us to think seriously about what behaviours do we expect of people and how do we really make them feel that it is something that they want to do to exhibit those full range of behaviours. And you don't get that from giving them uh, reward systems for doing it. You get that from making them part of a mission and making them really feel that they have, have a role in defining that mission and a contributing role to that mission and sharing the results, the rewards of that mission. So that's a pretty big ask. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it is. Do you want to? Um, I'm I'm interested in the way you're going to uh, talk to this third takeaway here that you've got as well. Oh, okay. So, so the the last takeaway that I had was just that this tension between compliance and discretion, which is what we argue about so much in safety today, is very very old, and I don't I really don't know what to make of that. Except that whenever we come up with a new safety theory, it's something that we need to grapple with. So it's not that this is like every safety theory is just repeating the past. It's a constant challenge that every safety theory must talk a little bit about this because it's so core to organizational dynamics. 
And when safety theories don't, when they ignore the fact that we need both of those, particularly when they only focus on reliable role performance, then they're really just ignoring this at least 60-year history of understanding about what's necessary for organisational performance. I think you can go right back to, you know, I know there's lots written about the Prussian armies uh, and and how they managed uh, their, their military activities consistent with, you know, exactly what we've been talking about in this paper. So I just wanted to hear the way you said that, Drew, because I think in one of our earlier episodes when we talked about um, zero harm and zero, if you believe that zero injuries is achievable, it's basically just, you know, telling the world that you're ignorant of maths um, and, and risks. So I thought you would, you would sort of label people as maybe ignorant of social psychology if uh, if their organisational programs don't grapple with this this tension. You, you thought you could provoke me into saying oh, that behaviour-based safety programs are ignorant of psychology? Uh, I don't need provoking for that, David. I'm happy to just say it outright. Very good. In 2021. So look, taking from the title of this paper, uh, which was the motivational basis of organisational behaviour, I think, Drew, this is this is such a great area of organisational and safety research that warrants really continued focus and attention. It's not just central to all of our contemporary safety theories. It's it, it's central to some of the ideas that are being communicated by the biggest influencers in the world of business, like Simon Sinek with his Start With Why, What Truly Motivates People in, in Companies, Dan Pink's uh, book on Drive, where he, where he talks about mastery and autonomy and purpose. These big ideas in in business organisations and safety are, are being sort of fueled by, you know, what? How do we understand what motivates people to contribute to their organisation? So I'd love I'd love safety researchers and practitioners to pick up this challenge and 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 try to build a deeper understanding of how we might make it work for for safety. Yeah, I think particularly when we get to the point of our, our safety programs are talking about you know everyone goes home safely. We're really talking about thinking of our workers as just coming to work to work. And every organisation, I think, aspires to go a bit beyond that. Every organisation would benefit from their their workers actually sharing the overall mission of the organisation. And safety shouldn't be this sort of set apart from that and just made this special topic where we know we're just going to sort of think old school union style, work out what the minimum standards are get people to meet those minimum standards. Great point, Drew. I think the objective of organisations isn't to have their people go home at the end of the day. Their objective as an organisation is to have people come to work and go and go above and beyond their role. Like that's what this paper is really trying to say. Um, don't send your people home safely. Send them in the door at the start of the day wanting to go above and beyond. So, David, the answer, how do organisations do this? How do organisations balance reliable role performance and spontaneous innovation? Well, Drew, my answer to this one was that we don't really know. And I'm I'm wondering if, you know, there's many organisations out there that don't have a deliberate approach to this, particularly in relation to their safety management programs and practices, which, you know, like like um, we said a little bit earlier, which is sort of counter to logic. Um, and it's also counter to 60 years of organisational and social theory and empirical research. So I suppose to our listeners, there's there's the challenge. Andrew, maybe just before we before we wrap up, in doing this paper, I, I suppose we dusted it off because it's a favourite and it's a theory paper and it's 60 years old, but there's a lot of really cool papers that are a little bit older. So I'd love to get some feedback from our listeners about what they thought of this style of episode and whether they want us to um, you know, pick a selection of, of papers you know, over the last half a century or so 
which we think can provide some really foundational ways of understanding um, some things that we're, we're, we're working on in modern safety. So Drew, let's see if we can get some permission to have a bit of fun with some of these older theory papers. Yeah, that'd be great. And if you've got particular papers you'd like us to cover, we'll do that. If you just say that you generally would like some interesting older papers, then I'll get to do an episode on Cohen's garbage can model of organizational choice. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. Join us in our discussions on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 